0: Just get that straight right now. All right. Um, We're going to be looking at David uh, over the next four sessions. And I have entitled this series, Life in the Kingdom of Grace. And the reason why we're going to unpack even more as we go, and I'll keep giving you little tidbits about it. But we're going to be looking at David's sin with Bathsheba. And so, yeah, there we go. There we go. I move around, so I don't like to be rigged. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start with Psalm 32. And the reason why we're going to start with Psalm 32 first is because David wrote this psalm a few years after his experience uh, of sin with Bathsheba. So this is a hindsight view. And then tomorrow we're going to look at the actual events in 2 Samuel Chapters 11 and 12. Now, here's how I want to introduce this. I used to love playing hide-and-go-seek with my kids when they were younger. Now it's not so fun because they know how to play the game. But it was fun when they didn't know how to play the game. You see, when, I, when it was my turn to hide, I would hide in places where they could not find me. And then I would stay quiet because I didn't want them to find me. And then after a while, it finally, when they did find me, I wasn't happy to be found. But when it's their turn to hide, they don't really hide. Because you'll see little heads behind the couch. You'll see a butt sticking out behind the chair. And so it was so easy that I decided I'd start delaying a little bit. And then all of a sudden, if I delayed for like five seconds, I'd hear this, Daddy, we're in David's room. (laughs) I'm like, dude, (laughs) okay, it's really easy to find you when you tell me where you are. So then I had to hide and make it about a minute or two before I went looking for them. And then, because of how long it took, that's when they would just flat out say, Daddy, come find us. We're over here. I'm like, you idiots. That's not how you play the game. And then when I found them, they'd go absolutely crazy. Daddy, you found us. You found us. Because well, it's not that hard. You made it real easy on me. My kids have not quite learned that the point of the game is to hide and stay hidden and quiet so that you won't be found. And then you're not supposed to be so happy when you are found. But when it comes to the Christian life, I believe that my children understand the game better than we do. You see, when we sin, we haven't quite figured out yet that we're not supposed to stay quiet and hide so that God won't find us, as if He doesn't know where we are. When it comes to the Christian life, we're supposed to cry out, Daddy, come find me. I'm over here. And then when we are found by Him, we're not supposed to be afraid, but we're supposed to be overjoyed at being found by our Father. When it comes to the Christian life, many Christians don't get that the meaning is not hide from God and hope that He doesn't find you because you're so afraid of what He will do to you when He does. No, the meaning of the Christian life is to be found. When we sin, we are to come out from behind the trees. We are to make as much noise as possible, telling God where we are, because He is the only one who can drive out the sorrow, drive out the guilt, drive out the shame drive out the fear, and fill us once again with joy. So here's what I want to propose to you this evening. When you sin, your spiritual health is dependent on being found by God. Because when we are found by God, we will find, you will find, that He is not an overbearing Father who seeks to punish you for every mistake you make. Instead, you will find Him to be so caring And so compassionate towards you that when you trust in him, he completely covers your sin. So it is my goal, and it is the goal of our text, to convince you that because your sin is completely covered, you can confidently confess your sin to God no matter what the sin is that you have committed. Or I could say it this way, Psalm 32 is meant to heighten our happiness in God because it shows us how to be spiritually healthy. Now, if you would, if you have your Bibles, pull them out. See, here's the problem. Three months ago, my sight started to go, so I bought a large print Bible, and now it's so bad I can't even read the large print Bible. So I have to wear glasses. All right, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Therefore, let everyone who is godly... That doesn't sound right in this context, does it? Who's he calling godly? Those who acknowledge their sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach and overcome me. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts, songs of deliverance. Now verse 8, most scholars believe this is God speaking to David. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And now this is David back in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule. What do we associate with a mule? They're what? Stubborn. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That word for steadfast love is the most beautiful word in any known language. In the Hebrew, it is the word chesed. You've got to spit when you say it. Chesed. No one word can capture its meaning. Every time in the Old Testament you see loyal love, steadfast love, covenant love, faithful love or kindness, grace and mercy put together, it's that Hebrew word chesed. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but chesed, God's loyal love, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And again, that seems out of place, doesn't it? And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Okay, let me pray. Father, as we come to hear your word, I do ask that your spirit would shine the glory of the gospel into our hearts to give us understanding into all that you have done for us so that we might confidently confess our sins to you, that we would stop hiding, that we would stop pretending and covering up what we have done, but that we would step into the light to be exposed, knowing that you will never turn away from us when we do. And we ask of this in Jesus' name. All right, because we don't quite get the meaning of the Christian life, we play the game all wrong. We falsely think that spiritual health means having no sickness at all. So when you see any sickness, you're shocked by it. Or when you see sickness in you, you try to hide it from God and from others. We falsely think that when we are being convicted of sin, that God is moving away from us. We think that he's so repulsed by what he sees that he's going to reject us, that he's going to punish us, that he's going to condemn us. I believe we play the game all wrong because we misunderstand what constitutes spiritual health in the Christian life. And I want to give you three common misunderstandings of how to achieve spiritual health today. The first one is this. It's when we believe that our spiritual health depends on the godly habits that we develop. We think that if I can just develop certain godly habits, then I'm going to be spiritually healthy. So we go to the local Christian bookstore, and we see seven habits of a highly healthy Christian. That's what I need. So we buy it. We read it. We try to develop these seven habits of a highly healthy Christian. Now, hear me. I am not saying that developing godly habits is a bad thing. In fact, it's very beneficial. But here's the question. What what happens when these habits don't work? What happens when following these seven highly habits of a healthy Christian doesn't prevent you from sinning? Well, then you have to follow the second misunderstanding of achieving spiritual health. You have to redefine sin. Sin is no longer defined as a rebellious condition that I'm born in. Sin is defined only as an ungodly act that I perform. Sin now is bad behavior. And that's how we define it. So, if I avoid the people, and I avoid the things that bring out that bad behavior, then I'm doing okay spiritually. The person who redefines sin as merely bad behavior believes that godliness is defined by doing good or godly things. And this is how it works. The more good or godly things I do, the better I feel spiritually, in my walk with God. The less godly things I do, the worse I feel. So what ends up happening is that one's behavior and one's feelings become the gauge to determine our spiritual health. But then, what happens when you find yourself not wanting to do godly things, but actually enjoy doing ungodly things? Well, then you've got to follow the third common misunderstanding of how to achieve spiritual health. You have to cover up and hide your sin. When godliness is defined by doing godly things, the focus is not only on avoiding the big, really bad sins, but it's also on hiding and covering up the little sins, the unnoticeable ones, or the ones that we think aren't as big of a deal. This is how this works. You can act loving towards people, but hide the fact that you can't stand being around them. And you actually feel good about that because you're not acting on how you feel. And so because sin is bad behavior, because I didn't act, I didn't sin. And this leads to all sorts of things. As long as I don't act on what I'm hiding and covering up, I'm doing okay. Which then leads to a whole assortment of things. As long as nobody finds out, It's okay to plagiarize that paper. It's okay to go to that pornographic website. It's okay to stay over and sleep with my boyfriend as long as we don't have sex. I had a seminary professor who rocked my world with this quote. He said, Godliness is not doing godly things. Godliness is not avoiding the big sins and then hiding or covering up the little sins. And I would say it this way. Your spiritual health is not determined by how many godly habits you develop. And it's not determined by how well you hide your ungodly habits. If it was, explain King David to me. If it was, explain Psalm 32 to me. David is known as a man after God's own heart, and he did not avoid the big sins. He was a coveter. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And in Psalm 32, we get insight into what David experienced when he tried to cover up and hide his sin and not confess it to God. You see, Psalm 32 has long been associated with David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. So if there is anyone who has reason to hide from God because of what he's done, it's David. If there is anyone who has the reason to fear that his forgiveness will run out, it's David. If there's anyone who has reason to fear what God will do because of what David has done, it's David. But what we learn from Psalm 32 is the most shocking thing about this psalm. The Christian is most sorrowful not when his or her sin is found out. By God, But when he or she remains silent and does not openly and honestly confess their sin to God. This is why I said we haven't quite figured out how to play the game yet. This is why we haven't quite figured out that the meaning of the Christian life is to be found. Because when we stay silent and hide from God, our spiritual health actually deteriorates. And as it's deteriorating, that can lead to physical health problems. And the longer we stay silent, the more distant we become from God. And the more distant we become from God, the more lost we become. So Psalm 32, it corrects our misunderstanding of what constitutes spiritual health and godliness by showing us that our spiritual health is not dependent on having no sickness, but on acknowledging the sickness that we do have no matter how great or how small. And it shows us that godliness is not defined by doing godly things. Godliness is determined by how honestly we deal with our sin before God. Now to see this, let's look at what David experienced when he kept silent about his sin in verses 3 and 4. But before we look at that, I want to ask this question. If Psalm 32 is in the context of David's sin with Bathsheba, how long did he go before he confessed it? How long did he remain silent? Now, obviously, you have to know when he confessed it, right? And we'll see that tomorrow. He confessed it when the baby was born. Nine months. At least nine months of staying silent. Nine months of carrying the weight of the guilt and the shame of what he has done. Now look at verses 3 and 4. For nine months, his spiritual and his physical health were deteriorating. He says, my bones were growing weak. And he's groaning all day long from having a guilty conscience. Day and night, he says, God's hand was heavy on me. Meaning that David couldn't escape the guilt that he felt. Day and night, he's convicted of his sin. His conscience is weighing against him. But for nine months, he refuses to seek relief. For nine months, he carries the weight of his guilt and the shame, which was so heavy that he feels like he cannot get out from under it. The heavy hand of God, in other words, it indicates that David knows what he needs to do. He knows he needs to confess. He knows he needs to repent. But for nine months, he stubbornly refuses. This is what keeping silent and trying to hide your sin does to you. It deteriorates your spiritual health because it drains the spiritual life right out from you. And it causes you to grow more and more distant from God. You see in verses 3 and 4, David is not spiritually healthy and happy and there is no book on developing godly habits that's going to help him. David is filled with sorrow because he's silent. But look at verse 5. Something happened. Then... I acknowledge my sin. David finally confessed and cried out to be found. I'm over here, God. Come find me. I've turned away from you. I have strayed away from you. The guilt and the shame is crushing me and I can't take it anymore. Please find me. After nine months, David was finally found by God when he acknowledged and confessed his sin. But here's what I want you to notice. When God found him, look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. What did David find? He found four things. He found forgiveness. In verse 5, God removed and lifted the weight of his guilt, so much so that in verse 6, he uses a metaphor to describe the guilt and the shame as a mighty floodwater. And he says, because God lifted and removed it, the floodwaters will not overcome or overtake me. Second, David finds God to be his fortress. Look at verse 7. God becomes David's hiding place. He becomes a refuge. He becomes a stronghold who preserves and protects him from trouble. And then also in verse 7, David finds freedom. God does not surround him with threats of punishment, but surrounds him with songs of deliverance. When David is found by God and he fears what God will do and stay, instead of hearing thunderous threats of punishment and condemnation, he hears the sweet melody of mercy because he's been delivered from what his sins deserve. And then lastly, look at verse 8. David finds God's face. God has not rejected David in the midst of his sin. God has not turned away from David. God has not repulsed By what he sees, instead, God draws near to him with his eye upon him in order to restore him and instruct him. So, brothers and sisters, do you see why your spiritual health depends on being found by God? Because when God finds you, you will find him to be the only one who can drive out the fear, drive out the shame, drive out the sorrow, And fill your heart again with joy. This is why David exhorts us in verse 9 not to be like the stubborn mule. Don't stubbornly refuse to confess. Your silence will only deteriorate your spiritual health. It will fill your heart with sorrow and cause you to become more distant from God. The foundation of your spiritual health is to be happy in God. So when sin fills your heart, and your spiritual health begins to deteriorate, the only way to regain strength is to confess, to openly and honestly acknowledge to God what you have done. Tell him what you've done. Call what you have done sin. Deal honestly with it. And if need be, deal honestly with one another. Now let's go back to verses 1 and 2 because it's interesting. David starts off with what he experienced when he confessed before he tells us what he experienced when he stayed silent. So in verses 1 and 2, we see why we can honestly deal with our sin before God. We see why we can confidently confess our sin to God because in these verses, David is describing the three blessings of being found by God. By not hiding his sin any longer, but by openly and honestly confessing it, the first blessing David discovers is that God forgives it. The word "forgive," it means to lift, to remove, to take away. By confessing his sin, David discovered that God had removed it. He's lifted it from it. He's taken it from it from him, and he's carried it away. The second blessing is found in the word "covered. It means concealed from sight. God has removed David's sin so completely that he no longer sees it. His sin is completely covered and concealed from God's sight. The third blessing is found in the word impute. In verse 2, it means to count, reckon. It's an accounting term. So think of what he's saying. Not only does God remove David's sin so completely that he no longer sees it, that is concealed from his sight, but God doesn't count his sin against him. David's sin never adds or piles up to his account. God doesn't keep a record of it. God doesn't check it off the list because that list is gone. No matter how much David continues to sin, he does not count it against him. David's sin will never add or pile up. And you got to ask this, how in the world can that be? How can this be? How can God remove coveting? Well, for us that might not be as big of a deal, but what about adultery? How can God remove adultery? How can God remove murder? How can these horrible sins be completely concealed from God's sight and not counted against David? Does God simply forgive and forget David's sin as if it's no big deal? All right, let's put this in perspective. We're going to look at this tomorrow, and you'll see the way of this. Imagine you were Uriah, or imagine you were Bathsheba's dad, and you were to find out God forgave David of his sin. What would you demand? Justice. I mean, how can God be just and let David go? And how can David be filled with joy over experiencing these blessings when his sin was so great? Because God does deal with David's sin, doesn't He? God does punish David's sin. David's sin does add up and it is placed on somebody's account, but not David's. David's greater son was charged with all of David's sin. Jesus paid the price for David's sin. God can look at David in his sin because he turned away and could not look at his own son who became David's sin on the cross. Jesus paid David's debt with his own blood. Jesus was forsaken by God, so David would not be. God can remove and completely take David's sin away because he put all of David's sin on Jesus. And now we don't have time to look at this, and I know y'all are tired, it's late. But in Romans 4, Paul quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, to show us that the covering of, it's not that God goes like this and goes, Oh, I don't want to see that sin. Oh, gosh, because if I see it, then I got to do something about it. Paul tells us that the covering is with Jesus' righteousness. So when David's sin is laid bare, when it's exposed, God doesn't see it because all he can see is his son's righteousness. Covering David. And Isaiah calls it a royal robe of righteousness. Theologians call this the great exchange. All of our sin is put on Jesus, and all of Jesus' righteousness is put on us like a royal robe of righteousness. And that's the hardest thing for us to believe in the midst of our sin, isn't it? Some of you are going, all right, Pete, come on now. What about that really bad one? Uh, I think adultery is pretty bad, don't you? I think mm-hmm. murder is pretty bad, don't you? All right, Pete, what about what? what, what about that secret sin nobody knows about? The One I haven't told anybody about. The one that I've made promise after promise after promise to God I'm going to stop. What about that sin I've committed for the hundredth time, God? Is that covered? Covered. How does God view you for the thousandth time of committing the same sin? Righteous. Covered. No matter how much David continues to sin, God does not count it against David. It never piles up because David is covered with a perfect righteousness that is not his own. So do you see why David in verse 5 no longer hides the depths of his sin? Because he discovered the depths of God's forgiveness. Do you see why David is now confident to confess his sin? because he discovered that it is completely covered. But it took nine months. Nine months of carrying the shame and the weight of the guilt of what he's done, which was crushing him, deteriorating his spiritual health, draining the life right out of him, before he finally confessed. So do you see why God wants you to be found by Him when you become lost? It's not because he wants to crush you under the weight of his condemnation. It's so that you can experience his fatherly care and compassion. It is so that he can convince you that your sin is covered. It is so that the floodwaters of the guilt and the shame will not overtake you. It is so that you will find God to be your fortress. Your hiding place, the only safe place you can run to to find protection and pardon. It is so that He can surround you with songs of deliverance from what your sin deserves. It is so He can convince you that His face shines upon you, that His look of love will never turn away from you. God wants you to come out from behind the trees. God wants you to expose yourself in order to be found so that He can restore your spiritual health and return to you the joy of the salvation that He has so graciously given to you. So what does Psalm 32 show us? Sorrow fills the heart of the one who is silent, while happiness fills the heart of the one not without sin, but the one whose sin has been completely forgiven and completely covered. Now, there was a married couple that, in their 15th year of marriage, they began having more than their usual disagreements. And their arguments began to escalate a little bit, where they were arguing a whole lot more over littler things. So they went to marriage counseling, and the counselor told them, here's what I want you to do, get two boxes... One for you, one his, one hers. We'll call it the fault box. So every every time you see the other one doing something that bothers you, write it down and put it in the fault box. And then at the end of the month, exchange so you can hear how it affects the other person and how they're seeing your faults. So... The husband pulls out the box for him from his wife, <laughs> he pulls out the first one, it says, Leaving the cap off the toothpaste, leaving the toilet seat up, doesn't help out with the kids enough, never takes me out on dates anymore, loves his hobbies more than he loves me, and on and on she goes. Wife pulls her box out. Pulls the first one, opens it, says, I love you. Pulls the second one out, I love you. Pulls the third one out, I love you. Do you get it yet? Do you get it yet? Because your sin is completely covered, God doesn't see it. All he sees is his son. So the next time you play hide and go seek with God, be like my children and cry out, Daddy, I'm over here. Come find me. Because there is joy to be found by a father who would give his son to completely cover your sin. Let me pray. Father, as we dive into a great hero, and we discover that he is a great sinner, he's no different than us. Yes, we are nobody in this room, because we'd be locked away if we did, has committed the sins that he has. But all of us have turned away from you, and we continue to turn away from you, And when we turn away from you, we are filled with fear over what you think of us. We are filled with fear over what you will do to us. And what Psalm 32 shows us is that we are most sorrowful when we remain silent. So would you help us to confess our sin? so that we can find your fatherly care and compassion, so that you can drive out the fear, drive out the sorrow, drive out the shame and the guilt, so that it won't overwhelm us. Because that's a load that is too heavy for us to carry. And that's why Jesus carried it for us. And because he did. You like us. You rejoice over us. You deeply love us. Convince us of that fact this weekend. And we ask of this in Christ's name. Amen.